This is Colonia Cast, episode 22. Yeah. Uh, we are actually live right now at the International Herpological Symposium. Make sure you can find us at the turtleroom.org slash coloniacast, where you can learn more about our program uh, and, and access the channel through there. Uh, today, we're really excited. This is going to be something new. This is the first time we've done a live session. Uh, we've had some technical difficulties, but hopefully that's all resolved now. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Whit Gibbons, uh, who really, I don't think, needs an introduction here, but uh, Dr. Gibbons has worked for many years with turtles and tortoises, doing a variety of different sort of research and uh, has published some incredible amount, at least 250 publications and at least 20 to 25 books. Uh, we are also joined by uh, Meg Hoyle, uh, who works at the uh, works for an ecotourism company in South Carolina. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, just what got them interested in reptiles, uh, as well as focusing on sort of why turtles are important, uh, as well as some of the things that are sort of an issue for turtles uh, in the 21st century, uh, and, and discussing some of the work that they've done and the experiences they've had. So thank you guys for both coming on today. We're really excited to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. All right, get us going. All right, so we start all of our we start them all off pretty much the same way, and this is a like a separate response from each of you guys. What got you into reptiles to begin with, and more specifically turtles, and how did you end up where you are? Oh my! Uh, well, I I guess I started off interested in reptiles and amphibians when I was about four or five years old, and I just happened to have a family that put up with it. Okay. And um, so I just liked them. And uh, turtles in particular, I particularly like snakes. And but when I went to Michigan State for doctoral research, um, there weren't that many snakes in Michigan compared to the turtles. So I decided to work with turtles. And I like turtles too. And uh, I've just have been fortunate to be able to make a career out of working with these animals and um, hope to keep still doing it. How about you, Meg? What sort of got you started with, with uh, reptile research or sort of your path working with, with animals? I was to meet a retired science educator when I was very young at Edisto Beach. And so she got me involved in her volunteer work with the Sea Turtle Project when I was eight, nine or 10 years old. So it was an educator reaching out to a young person who cared about the environment. And I, at that age, I just knew I liked, tur liked animals in general. And then uh, that led me more specifically into sea turtles and then working with them. And, uh, but I do like the environment and outside, but like Whit, it was a vehicle for me to get to do what I loved, which was be outside with animals. Right. That's really interesting. I think that, you know, that that's fundamental for getting people interested in reptiles or, or animals in general is that early kind of getting kids out in nature really to see that there's something beyond screens nowadays. Uh, something that is kind of interesting, uh, a lot of our listeners are younger, whether that be pre-collegiate or actually in college doing work. Uh, one of the questions that we've gotten a lot when we put out sort of questions that, that listeners can submit is, what are some of the obstacles that uh, people pursuing herpetology in an academic sense uh, should should look 
I guess maybe not look forward, but should look ahead to to think about experiencing at some point. What maybe what is one obstacle that you faced in your career, uh, getting your master's or PhD in, in kind of that trajectory? Something that was hard, uh, that maybe was unexpected, that people should kind of look out for. Your turn, Maddie. All right, I'll start. Uh, for me. I did well academically, but it was a struggle for me. I did not enjoy classroom learning and I wasn't exposed to very much field work. So for me, it was the entry level biology classes. Um, I went to a college that really stressed pre-med. And so I don't know if they were harder than other intro biology classes, but it almost uh, derailed me for a little while. It was very hard to get through for me academically. So that for me, you know, like I had this passion and I wanted to work with animals, but we're learning about cells and I wasn't making the connections. Uh, so that for me was a little discouraging. I spoke with a professor because I had taken a lot of art history by the time I needed to declare my major. And I wasn't sure if biology or art history would win out. But she said, where do you envision yourself? And it was not working in a museum. So uh, I do think don't be afraid of the academics. If you really care about it, just push, you'll get through it. Don't let it oh, discourage that, you. That, that excellent answer. And that's what I was going to say too, is um, that the, the, uh, the barriers or that bother people are the things you don't want to do, but you have to do. You got to jump through these fiery hoops if you're going to be in academia anyway or any, any part of life, you've got to do things you don't really want to do, but just do them like Meg says and get them out of the way and then do what you want to do. Right, I think that's that's an interesting way to put it. I was, I do, I mean, it, it's a good thing, I think, and uh, it's certainly something that doing the research I've done with the pond turtles has been apparent. It's, you want to go out in the field and, and explore and actually get learn something about the animals, right. but then you realize that you actually have to apply certain, uh, for example, what I'm doing now is actually more, I think, calculus than anything else. So it's just, yeah. you have to get- And you have to get permits, you have to get permissions yeah. to do. I mean, those are, bar those are barriers to getting where you wanna be. Right. And right. you just wanna knock them down or get over them somehow or another. But uh, yeah, that's, um, and 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 I think Meg put it. Don't get discouraged. Just do it and get it done. Get it behind you. Yeah, we will definitely take that to heart as all of us. Sorry, go on with our careers, and and I think that that's good. You gotta work at it. Well, maybe uh, that would be the thing. What do y'all consider as barriers? Yeah, let's open that up. I okay. mean, I think like anyone going into the realm of like biological sciences encounters whether it's like a general chemistry or like particularly okay like it's a and no one likes it but it's just one of those yeah, things that you have to I do. agree yeah, I, I think I, I relate to that yeah <laughs> some for some people certain disciplines click more than others and yeah if you have to apply right. like a lot of different things for a single goal that that alone could be kind of a barrier so yeah we'll get started with the turtles in a second but I think that for me it's actually the technology uh, I would say like, yeah, for about 30 minutes before this started, we were all trying to figure out this, but <laughs> I actually dislike it, but I've learned to deal with it. So, right. well, to a certain extent, I still get upset sometimes, but uh, much, much longer it's a work in progress. Me. So, yeah, I think maybe we can transition into talking about the, 
turtles and, and maybe taking a step back, I think when we look at research questions uh, and come to a symposia like this, like for all of us that attend, there's obviously sort of an intrinsic value uh, to colonians or reptiles in general. But a lot of times maybe we don't think, how do we make this accessible for people that don't understand our, our love for them or even make it something that it, it demonstrate that it's actually important uh, and, and what metrics should we be using to demonstrate what is important for? Uh, so maybe we can just talk about some ways that turtles are important uh, and, and why people should care about conserving them. Um, hmm. that, oh, well, um, there's a lot of ways they're biologically important. I mean, we, we do about just the, the, the basic things you and I have talked about before, like seed dispersal, um, they're, they're, they're good, um, good, they're intricate parts of uh, ecosystems, the web, web, um, food webs, uh, that kind of thing. But I, th I think, um, turtles are important. Just, they just have this intrinsic people. Most people like turtles. Very few people don't like turtles. And a lot of people really like turtles. So I think they have a, they have a cultural importance to us that uh, that's uh, hard to define. Why do why do people like certain kinds of art or and, the, and in biology, turtles are one of the things people like. And I, I think uh, that, that's a that's a reason to um, to um, do what we can to keep them around because people do like them. Um, I don't know. Meg probably has a more elegant answer than that. Not at all. I think you hit the nail on the head. We we need to pay attention to the things we, we are also not attracted to, but certainly if they're animals that people like, then there's a there's an intrinsic value they have, but they also are already on the likability scale. So if we need to use that to further conservation, uh, larger conservation issues that involve the turtles, then I think that's a great way yeah. to, to do that. Right, and I think turtles have those that bio personality we like. They're they're mm -hmm. patient, like Michael. How patient he was setting all of this up. Um, persistent. They don't stop. Um, they seem to just um, roll with whatever 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 we're giving, whatever the world's giving them. They keep plodding along, and they've been doing so since the dinosaurs. So uh, uh, they must be doing something right. And we can learn from them. That's interesting. Uh, one of the things, too, that you've done some work with is looking at biomass of turtles. That's kind of an interesting metric. Maybe you can talk about why is that important to look at and, and in what context have you researched that with yeah. turtles? Um, well, my, my um, involvement with looking at biomass has been just studies to, to go into particular uh, particularly aquatic ecosystems and see what what um, how much of the the function and the biomass does um, do do turtles uh, contribute to a particular ecosystem and it turns out they they're often a you know they in terms of just biomass just happens to be one easy thing to measure how much do they weigh uh, and if you look at um, a lot of lakes, and probably most uh, lakes, certainly in the southeast, probably have 
biomass of turtles is more than the, um, most other things in the lake. Just in other words, which means they are energy is going through these turtles, and they are they are an integral part of the the ecosystem. Uh, and, and and biomass, you pick that because yeah, that we've had some publications, but it's just easy to measure. It's easy to measure how much uh, impact an animal or a plant is having on uh, the environment. It's how much, uh, how 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 um, how much of a how much of a part of that environment is it or that ecosystem? I don't know. Meg, Meg again, probably. <laughs> Tell us about it, Meg. <laughs> you give me too much credit. Uh, I I like the, I'm going to paraphrase the Aldo Leopold of, you don't want to lose the pieces of the watch until you know what they all do. And uh, being able, the turtles are a macro consumer in these environments. So they're an important part of it. And as yeah. we're saying, you measure that biomass and you start to realize how big a part of it they really are. There's right. not something that people see a lot. I'm on the coast and the diamondback terrapins or something. Somebody can live there their entire life and never really notice that that's the little head they're seeing popping up. You know, there's just not a lot of awareness often. Yeah. And um, so, um, but uh, I'm not sure where you, you, you brought up biomass, but um, what other aspects of, in fact, terrapins is a good, good, that's a good turtle to talk about right. because it's the only turtle in the world that lives only in the estuarine environments. I mean, there are turtles called terrapins in Asia, but they're not like our terrapins. Diamondback terrapins, they live in the brackish water only. And Meg did one of the great studies on diamondback terrapins for her masters uh, to show uh they um how we're affecting them which is with um some right. of the no crab traps. right yeah you can tell them quickly that and then well, well before you do i'll tell you terrapins are really special in in uh as turtles because they're the only vertebrate that i can think of that spends its entire life in the brackish water and uh doesn't go into freshwater, doesn't, I mean, just quick excursions, but shortly, or saltwater, and lives totally in the brackish water. There are a lot of fish that do that, but they go into saltwater. I mean, like the fish are come in saltwater or freshwater to breed, for instance, but as uh, far as I know, can you think of another vertebrate that stays, stays only in brackish water? I have thought about that since I first heard you say that many years ago, and I still haven't come up with one. Oh, good. Okay. Well, anyway, tell them what you did. Can you do that? Because that's sure, yeah. a great here, story. I was working for the Department of Natural Resources at the time, and I asked uh, the biologist that I was working with what she thought would be an important uh, uh, master's project that would have management implications. And at that time, there was some talk about incidental capture of diamondback terrapins in commercial crab traps, but nobody was looking at recreational crab traps. So we were able to look at the possible impact, and the possible impact is a significant one. And just in a season or two, 
someone could accidentally outfish a creek that does not have the input. Once terrapins are adults, they're going to stay in a, their same zone in their creek. So there's not a lot of movement between creeks, which uh, research had found. So we realized if we were accidentally taking them through just say a couple of crab traps, that could wipe out that population in a couple of years and it wouldn't be replaced by neighboring creeks. That, that's pretty interesting. I, I seen her call a publication too. Was this, uh, you may have mentioned, but was this at, at Disto or Kiowa or where, what location was this? Maybe Kiowa. Kiowa, but she, she's at Edisto now, right. but yeah, go ahead, Meg. The work was with the marked populations and, and the Kiowa program. That's it. There was some publication recently, I think, that did something similar to that and quantified and said that actually compared to data that was taken from the 80s to late 90s, from, I think, early mid to 2010s, or actually before 2010 to 2013, some range, essentially past data from there uh, compared to more contemporary data showed that the rate of terrapin deaths has actually gone up. Uh, Maybe you could speak to that. That's the crab traps that could be causing that, but is road mortality something that also contributes? I'm not sure. Do you know that study? I'm not familiar I, with it. I'm not sure exactly what study that would be, but uh, but I think terrapins are declining a yeah. lot in a lot of places. Road mortality is a big problem. It turns out just it at Kiowa, that's not, the, a big problem, but at, uh, what is it? Where is it? Um, I saw one this week on the causeway going to Edisto. So any of those causeways, Jekyll Island, uh, I think Pauly's Island has had problems with them with, with yeah. that nesting females getting hit on the causeways going out to the beaches. Cause the females are coming out of the marsh onto those high berms that they build the roads on. So you're not only losing a terrapin, you're losing a nesting female. Yeah. So when those ter so road mortality is a major problem for not just terrapins but turtles everywhere. I mean, uh, that's they, they've evolved for 200 million years, but they haven't evolved the predator of an automobile or a truck hitting them. Um, and so when a turtle goes out on the road, it. Um, something it, it ha doesn't have a natural defense at all and they're not in a big hurry usually <laughs> uh, so um yeah that's that's uh but but i, I don't know the specific study but uh, except our, our studies with kiowa they're certainly declining uh yeah. and I, a lot of it is could be from recreational commercial crab trapping uh, it could be from, uh, I mean, we know that's been, I mean, there's one, one example of another study that was done that showed a recreational, no, a commercial crab trap that had, I believe it was 99 terrapin shells in it, that it was a ghost trap. In other words, it sat there for months, years, 99 terrapin shells in it did. I mean, they were obviously just shells that it collected over the years. Okay, you leave a trap like that out, and it's just constantly killing these turtles. So it's a it's a 
and there have been there have been um, programs. I know there was one in Louisiana and one in Texas, where they they move through people move through and remove, and they do studies to and our programs to remove the ghost traps that are killing. That's not just terrapins; it's killing stone crates, killing anything. I guess it goes in it and can't get out. So, um, and I don't I don't know what to what the answer is to that other than, than, um, well, well, there, there are some answers and, and, and Meg, you, you did a remember early on, you did a great job at Kiowa. We posted, you posted those announcements to, to recreation. See, people do things like that, bad things, but they don't know they're doing it. They don't know that you come down from New Jersey and you put your crab trap in the water at Edisto, I mean at Kiowa, and you catch some blue crabs, and then you put it in, and then you forget about it and go back. You don't, you don't think about. It. You just left left a death trap out there, and so, you know, education is is it's hard to do, but and you got to keep doing it. But um, but you you then you find there was a, there's a, a good feeling at Kiowa because of those efforts, I think. Don't you? Yes, volunteers or community members like Marilyn Devers have been instrumental in most communities. It takes an active person living in that community to care about the turtles and to yeah. start educating people. Like you mentioned, people coming from somewhere else who might not understand the impact of what of leaving a trap. Yeah, that's right. So. Anyway, kind of yeah. bouncing around and here, but it's, it's not only bad news for the terrapins themselves, it's bad news for the habitat as well because the terrapins they um, keep the population of periwinkle snails in control. That's right, mm -hmm. and yeah. those, those snails have the capability Good. to like destroy the habitat if they go unchecked. Mm -hmm. That's right. but, you know, I was going to bring it back for a sec to the road mortality. Terrapins seem almost particularly vulnerable to that, and in, in a sense that they're very restricted to where they can nest. They, they, they don't have a lot of options, like a lot of riverine turtles may, or, uh, or even box turtles, or because in the estuarine environments, they only have the closest dunes is where they can nest, but those also happen to be prime real estate for the, I mean, there's there's cons, there's always development in almost all those areas. Very few of them are left undeveloped anymore. And uh, those highways are just full of traffic and they're right there. The terrapins have to cross them. They have no chance. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it, you can see dozens of them dead if you go to the right area, just yeah. smashed on the road. Yeah, like I'll tell you what, Jack and, I, Jack and I actually live in an area with a very high abundance of diamondback terrapins. Wow. And there's a highway that goes right through it. And I mean, there's prime mm -hmm. nesting areas on one side and a uh, bay with like, you go out there on any given day and you'll see hundreds of heads in the water at a time. It is a very, very high abundance of them. And you know, when you drive down the road in July, you see them just spattered all over the road. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. The state of Delaware has actually put up a drift. They have. They put up a drift so fence since then. That's those true. do have a really positive impact. Mm -hmm. But like, seen, yeah, they but, significantly reduce the mortality, and uh, just directing the females, the nesting females, away from uh, the highway. I mean, mm -hmm. the mortality of nesting females from like an anthropogenic threat in any species of turtle is is extremely damaging to the long term mm -hmm. survivability of the species. I think you say it's. I think it's interesting that you say that people kind of do care too in your experience. A lot of times I think people essentially assume people trapping crabs are using traps and 
don't really care much about the turtles, but it's just that they're uneducated. That we were talking to someone, I, I actually forget who mentioned this, but uh, it kind of goes towards bolstering that idea, I think. It, they started a competition in New Jersey uh, for people to landscape your lawn the most effectively and see how many terrapins you could have. Oh, pass. really? Yeah, so it seems like people do really care. It's just a matter of getting the word oh, out. Oh, so yeah. That, you we, know, people definitely care. Yeah, we, we run into it all the time. Mm -hmm. that people just, oh, I wasn't aware. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I know Meg gets a lot more of these kind of calls than I do, but I even get them. But but I I have people that have lived on the coast for all their life, and I mean they're in their you know forties or fifties, and they send me a picture of what is this turtle nesting, and it's a terrapin which they've lived within a hundred feet of all their life and never yeah. know what. Don't you have that occasionally? Absolutely, all the time. Yeah, that people, you know, it's just, but that's up to people like us, like you, mm -hmm. you people out there need to, I'm, I'm waving to this gigantic audience we have here, um, that, uh, that um, no, that uh, it's up to us to, to educate people and giving, giving talks to people. And in fact, to, I'll just say this in the, my talk I'm going to give, I have a picture of Meg. Hoyle, actually, where you're holding a terrapin, talking to a bunch of people in kayaks. Mm -hmm. and I know you do that all the time, and it's it's amazing. I'll, I think a lot of y'all do the same thing. You talk to people, and you're you you find you're surprised that oh, you didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I live in a neighborhood that's built uh, right next to a salt marsh, and you know it's a natural preserve, and. Um, Terrapins come up into my neighborhood and nest all the time. The same female's been to, into my yard a couple of times since I moved in, and every time she's laid a nest and they've always produced. But there are actually people in my neighborhood now that actually have my number, and whenever yeah. they're hatchlings and their yard's crawling around the street, they always call me, and I come and pick them up and check up on them and then let them out into the marsh. <laughs> so, you know, it's all about that kind of outreach and that That's connection right. with the yeah. local community. Anything you can do to educate. Very important. Yeah. That's right. You mentioned something earlier too that was interesting: seed dispersal and the roles that turtles play there. I think we've hit home as kind of used as a flagship species, or in, as Ken mentioned, kind of regulating prey species populations and kind of a trophic level. They, they obviously have kind of, I guess, top-down effects on on prey species, and that that could even prey species abundance has effects on water chemistry on all manner of the ways that an ecosystem kind of at even an atomic level almost you could you could look at it like that so really by having these these effects tr in trophic ecology in a trophic sense they're having effects on the ecosystem in, in a chemical manner in sort of a even sort of a spatial manner gopher tortoises create a lot of area for other species as ecosystem engineers and a lot of species can actually use those those habitats that they create, but seed dispersal kind of it is contributing to the the fauna or the the flora of a place, but it kind of falls outside of that the, the effect trophic sort of level has. What 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 is going on with seed dispersal in turtles? Well, I think uh, there are uh, there there are a lot of a lot of species. I think if if um, if we studied um, if if they were looked at carefully, I would 
every nearly every aquatic turtle that eats plants and every terrestrial certainly box turtles and and tortoises we already know they do it eat plants and they eat plants and uh and they move around they they redeposit those seeds and a lot of seeds of some plants require going through a digestive tract this scarification of the surface of the seed they require it they either some of them have to go through birds some have to go through tortoises for instance that's been been pretty well uh, documented that uh, that uh, so it's 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 the plants are they, they they're dependent on something to disperse those seeds turtles and tortoises are a, a great uh, i don't know about in the Sea turtles, Meg, you work with sea turtles. Do any of the sea turtles eat, move around some of the... No, the greens grazing their foragers on the seagrass beds, and that's been shown to be an important, uh, just like having grazers keeping down grass communities that, that, you know, there's a cycle there and a process. So I know that that's important. And then the others are, uh, so many of them are omnivores and... Uh, really big predators yeah. on the mollusk and the yeah crabs and horseshoe crabs so very important so uh, yeah i think yeah they, they just um, they're they're they they're good at mixing up the mixing up the habitat mm -hmm. and they move around uh, mm -hmm. you know they they uh um so i think and also uh, birds are very important as seed dispersers but turtles particularly some of the tortoises and of course the aquatic turtles for sure birds aren't eating mostly except for some of the aquatic stuff uh fowl um are the turtles are the the main dispersers of some of these um, plants i mean i think if it were looked at carefully quantitatively you'd find out they were much more important than anybody realized yeah in fact um just like you said, the eastern box turtle, it's the only known sea dispersal agent for the may apples. That's right. And yeah, those are a it's good. Vulnerable plant right now. That's right. There you go. I think you'd find more examples of that if you looked at. Yeah, more I, I more, think, you would find a lot more. I think. Than if I think species was dissected. Yeah. It's uh, in terms of life history, yeah. and uh, even it's on some species. I think the vast majority of like colonians in existence play our seed dispersers to some extent, like uh, almost all tortoises certainly are, most aquatic turtles, and even most different box turtles, even snapping turtles. Oh, yeah. Important seed yeah dispersers. They're very both, both genre. Yeah. They, they, you know, they might look like just predators. They, they, they're important seed dispersers, too. Yeah, so well, the, a lot the aquatic ones, second, like snapping turtles, particularly, they live in an aquatic environment feed in aquatic, but they move overland then, no telling where they might drop these seeds and end up in another habitat a half a mile away. Yeah. The process of the seeds going through the gut and then coming out with some, well, the feces that they can use as a, some Nutrient. may even take advantage oh of that God, as nutrients. Yeah. So even for species that don't directly depend on the, the turtles for their dispersal or don't depend on them for survival, it's certainly could be a benefit to them. And yeah. even without, say, if the turtle, if a given species of turtle was suddenly removed and the like structure of the, I guess you'd say the flora present, some may go extinct or the ones that may have relied on it, but it's everything's going to change because almost all are going to be affected in some way. 
Right. Yeah. Something I think that is the seeds and everything. That's it's interesting. We're mentioning the sea turtles too. Something that might not get as much attention is the bioturbation that turtles do. And you're, I think, sort of hinting at that and, and the fact that they're grazing and such and, and, and could potentially spread certain species through the, that kind of mechanism. They're also really kind of rooting around in the ecosystem. There's a, there's a study on loggerheads. Called, they actually coined a term called infaunal mining. Uh, where the loggerheads would dig for different mollusks and just in the process of digging when they analyzed the sort of microbiome that were in those pits that they created it was much more diverse than in any other spots so just the act of actually changing the landscape can have impacts on the landscape itself in, in terms of what's living there and it's kind of an interesting thing that, that even microscopic sort of changes can exist right. with Right. Yeah. And that a lot better. Exactly. Gopher tortoises are yeah, the, the, the paragon of that kind of thing. And in fact, even sol solcata, which most people think of as pets here, but where they really live, you know, in the above the Sahara, they are they dig. I think what they turn up in terms of bioturbation and uh, and of course, uh, yeah. So I, I think it's, uh, um, I think gopher tortoises um, and armadillos maybe are doing a lot, lot more to move the soil around in, 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 a, in, a, in a positive way. I think it, it stirs up seeds it, it, um, and um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, again, one of those things that no, who's gone out and really measured mm -hmm. what the, except this loggerhead study you're talking about that uh, it, it's 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 a good that's a good good um, good point yeah I think it's really just in the discussion about this it's there's so many variable ways that I think are pretty easy for people to understand that they might not really think that right. turtles can have these effects right. that are far reaching ultimately that actually have impacts as on us as humans, because we're just as part of the ecosystem as anything else. Uh, and, and in certain ways, maybe more reliable in terms of how we built up society uh, and, and keeping turtles as is, I think helps us ultimately in, in maintaining a balance that, that exists between nature and, and how ecosystems all interconnected. And I yeah. think that <laughs> we remove a crucial piece. I would say turtles probably, uh, they, they seem to be given the conversation we've had um, about this, and, uh, that, that could really be detrimental to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about radioactive turtles. Uh, <laughs> this is something kind of interesting that that people might not be aware of. But as opposed to talking about the more specific side of this, <coughs> just the, kind of what it was like to be out in the field and studying some of the things you looked at at uh, the the uh, Savannah River. At SREL. Why are they radioactive? Maybe we oh, well, they're radioactive because um, the Savannah River site is where five of the nuclear production reactors of the country, the others were out at Hanford in Washington State, five of the five reactors uh, there, um, they had some they had some problems from time to time, and there were uh, radioactive cesium and strontium was released into the environment and it's very very 
very prescribed areas. I mean, I, I worked there for 40 years, but I knew where those places were and I knew not to go in, but the turtles didn't. So they would go in there and turtles, strontium is an analog to calcium. In other words, if, it, if you get strontium, radioactive strontium, it replaces the calcium in the bone. And we discovered that, wow, with a, just a Geiger counter, you can do it to put it on a turtle and tell how hot it is. In other words, how radioactive it is. And that gives you an, and because of that, turtles were instrumental in the discovery of where some abandoned pits that had radioactivity in them were. And the way we found it and told the Department of Energy about it was because we got radioactive turtles that just suddenly appeared in a certain area. So we knew there was radioactivity. We tracked them back where they got hotter and hotter, combed it in right to an area where they, so if they were, if it weren't for the turtles, those places might still be there. And who knows might, who might have wandered. And, and you, you, radioactivity, you can't walk out until it's there, you know, without an instrument. And so, yeah. um, so thanks to the turtles, they were able to clean up those areas. All right. Well, that's good that they could be used for that. Maybe not good that it was there to begin. <laughs> well, they, the turtles didn't put it there. So, well, yeah. uh, but um, yeah, they, they, uh, but if that was one thing and another thing it told it, told, but we turned it to advantage. Um, the, we had all these radioactive turtles, uh, at once no, once we identified where the radioactive sites were, we knew that any radioactive turtle it had a signature then, and if you found a radioactive turtle uh, with a certain um, radioactive signature, you knew it came from one of those sites. Therefore, we that's how we found out how far the dispersal rates of these um, slider turtles were. For instance, that's how we found out they could travel over a mile overland to another mm. another aquatic site because we found radioactive turtles a mile away, for instance. And so every time we found one, we could see how far, this is how far turtles can travel. Yeah, mm. it was a tool, it became, we, I mean, again, we didn't, we didn't put it there, but it, it was there, the turtle showed us where it was, we thought, well, what else can they show us? Yeah, it, it can also be used. You also use it to figure out how long certain species stay. And because the Savannah River site is a series of ponds, right? If I'm right, in, in, in bays. So you can use sort of the concentrations and the unique signatures to figure out how long turtles are in certain spots. Right. Well, well, for instance, yes, we found out uh, that was how, where the first idea, not, not just a few, very few of these aquatic sites are radioactive or were, they've cleaned them all up now, but only most of it were natural wetlands. But what we were able to do is uh, in the studies, we found out the females were much more radio radioactive than the males, the females were, which meant the males didn't spend as much. In other words, male, we, that's when, oh, the males are traveling around more. They don't spend time in a site as long as females. And then uh, then other studies showed that to be true. 
but it gave us gave us ideas uh, of um, how ready how yeah as you say it was uh, unfortunate but hey that's that you did, we took advantage of the way it was and uh, it was uh, instructive to us and there were a lot of other studies people did using the radiation it turns out the radioactivity didn't affect the turtles we never found any evidence of affecting the turtles hmm. but you wouldn't want to eat one of those turtles <laughs> yeah that's uh, for all. <laughs> yeah that's that's interesting that that could be used in a way that almost like a biological tracker so yeah it was. Yep, absolutely was yeah it's an interesting thing mm -hmm. and you can also i think a lot of people when you think radioactivity just yeah that negative sort of connotation uh, definitely exists, but the fact that you can use it to answer interesting biological questions could be kind of an interesting thing. And yeah. when you're talking about the exposures, right, certain exposures are not bad and can actually be useful in understanding uh, sort of metabolism too, right? That's oh, yeah, you, can you could, yeah, right. That, yeah, that becomes, I guess, more of a complex that mechanics behind that is kind of something that you can look at assimilation and, and sort of that aspect of maybe you could talk to that or right uh well you, you could well uh, not turtles it could be used with turtles i guess yeah it could be uh is uh the original reason for the savannah river ecology lab was a, a famous scientist named gene odom who did his studies there using it's they started by um making uh, putting radioactive tracers in the plants and then checking the insects and see which ones were radioactive in other words they determined the food web of who who was eating whom by who was radioactive and who wasn't so that I mean that yeah that would it, the the concept of using radioactivity to trace food webs started gosh that was over 50 years ago so um, uh, and and you could still do that now, though. You, there's so many regulations about using radioactivity. I mean, we we um, yeah. I, I think you would find that there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of reg a lot of permits be required before you could take make a good study out of that these days. But probably that's better. Yeah, for people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say, right? The absence of any negative effects. Yeah, tough to say. But how about maybe some of the experiences that you had? Maybe what was something that was really an interesting experiment you did, or one of the most kind of experiences from the Savannah River, or even the ES George Reserve that kind of stands out in your mind? Uh, well, the George Reserve, we need to have Vince Burke or Justin Congdon because they did the work at the, that's in Michigan. Um, 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 I, there's, I don't know what kind of, we ought to give Meg, I'm sure, has had a lot of experience with anecdotal experiences on the coast there with dealing with terrapins. What, what, and I, then I'll come up with something, but. <laughs> well, actually, with loggerhead sea turtles with Tom and Sally Murphy, I was uh, 
I think I was a, a technician working with them when they were doing uh, some research with Ken Burke from North Carolina about the homing based on the magnetic field and the turtle brains. And they put these big magnets on these loggerheads. And I was with Tom Murphy and um, we would just follow these turtles every day in a boat. We had uh, radio tags on them so we could follow them with the radio tags and getting to follow a turtle and how they picked, uh, they would take a, a compass reading and they would stay right on it. It was amazing. We were in the boat with the compass following this turtle and they did not waver. They were, they were right on those numbers. That was amazing for me to see. Just a straight line, huh? Yeah, when they knew yeah. where they wanted to go, they did not waver. Yeah, well, I think one of the, um, um, in fact, it came from those, from that study of finding out that how turtles moved away from these radioactive areas to other lakes overland as far as a mile in one case, couple of cases that we came up, well, it became the question, can these turtles find an aquatic how do they how do they know where it's like Meg's talking about these turtles know these were sea turtles she's talking about they know where they're going alligators do the same thing anybody that studies them will tell you they know where they're going i'm talking about miles away and the turtles uh a study done by a, a student at srel rebecca yeomans um determined what we found out from other studies find it has to be true is she did a great study with putting turtles in the middle of the wood slider turtles and there were four ponds in different directions a mile away nothing between except woods between where their turtles were and they didn't weren't going to live there because it was a, a terrestrial area these are aquatic turtles every one of them would go immediately straight lines to one of the ponds and they would always go to the they one was closer than the other like a I mean, he's over a half a mile away, though, right through the woods, and uh, but only on sunny days. So, in other words, it was cloudy. So, it's one of those kind of studies that there's a lot of other. It made a lot of other questions come up, and that's all published. But how did they find? How do they know their? How do they know their way? It's, yeah, were, it's an interesting question. Were all those turtles? I'm assuming they would have not been. They weren't collected from any. No, no, they. Yeah, they, they were from another. They were all from other areas. Yes, yeah. right. And they, they were placed yeah. totally new area to them. Completely, they would have no yeah. preconceived um, idea where they were any placed out of sight of the water too. Oh yeah, yeah right. just woods, yeah. woods. Yeah. They could see the sky, but you way. couldn't. I mean, there were trees. Yeah. We talked to Craig Adler on the podcast. A few. It's not something that's released yet. He's done a lot of work with. I guess, uh, polarotaxis and phototaxis and lizards and even deciphering between those two things. Cause I think the line is kind of thin. You actually have to do a controlled experiment to distinguish between the two. But, uh, it seems like that would at least support the idea that there's some sort of time compensated sun compass that they're using. Yeah. Do you think yeah. That that's the case? Uh, I, I, I guess we don't know. I, <laughs> I do think so. Uh, I, 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 my, my hypothesis is 
somehow they detect polarized light reflecting off of the surface of the water and they can see where water is because mm -hmm. it reflects differently. I don't know. What do you think? Is that possible? I mean, it's, it would, they, I, 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 the structure of the eye would be interesting to look at that. Well, actually, if you look at uh, a slider turtle and any turtle that a lot of the turtles that are aquatic, semi-aquatic, that go from pond to pond, they have a black line through their eye. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, yeah that's true. But it seems to be correlated with uh, the more like the surface dwelling turtles, the ones that are, are spending a lot of time with exposure to the sun to where they may use sun. Tor tortoises have round people. Yeah, they like, don't have that. You, like you don't see that in musk turtles or no, a lot of bent turtles that stay in the water. They stay in the water. They don't really move. In, yeah. fact, if, in fact, the greatest comparison is river cooters which stay in the water versus uh, Florida cooters, you know, the, and I, I realize there are taxonomic issues, but there's, there's one group that stays in the river, one group that stays in ponds, and Grover Brown mentioned this the other day, and that's the reason I'm not even aware of it, but the Florida cooters have the black line. They go overland from pond to pond, River cooters do not have the black line. They stay, they, and they're a turtle that stays in the river. So you do, you do the math. It's, it's a great study for somebody to do. Some, anybody that's. Um, a difficult study. Yeah. Well, yeah have to find. Uh, most studies, they concern the uh, pineal pathway for polarization sensitivity. But right now we're talking about the retinal pathway. So you have yeah, to figure out right to there. block the vision, to not block the vision while blocking the. Polarization sensitivity. I, I don't. I don't know how it would work. Uh, I'm a herpetologist, not a physicist, again, so I don't know. <laughs> no, but I. It. It. Yeah. I think there's obviously a lot of it. It's. Uh, but it's. It's a. It's a question that's out there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's still. I mean, the the pineal pathway too is not necessarily polarized light it could also just be a photoreceptor so it's it's just perceiving light versus polarization I, maybe that doesn't really matter they are technically too light is just brightness and directionality whereas polarization is actually sort of i guess wave patterns based on when it's compressed based on the, the sky so maybe they don't it, it, they're interrelated to a point where it's it's almost sort of trivial to separate it beyond the only sort of knowledge we gain, I guess, would be distinguishing between just if they're responding to light or if they're responding to a specific type of. Yeah, you're right. Pattern. They could be. That it's just brighter. I don't know. I've never. Is there a lake out there and there's not one over here? Is it brighter? I don't know. In hmm. other words, would you, is there some detectable thing? That I, I don't know. Something detectable that they're using? And their range of visible to what light is they're perceiving with their eyes compared to us, like the range of that we are seeing has got to be different. Than, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, like, yeah, I would assume it's, so. It's, and that's almost like borderline philosophical. It's just hard to think of how an, a different, another organism's perceiving its environment. Mm -hmm. Thinking, oh, you think of sight, you think of the visible light spectrum, you're not thinking, you're not including anything that you can't really perceive. So you just kind of have to take that into account for this, this topic. 
Yeah, we don't really have, I mean, actually, I think there is some work with humans and extraocular photoreceptors, but we don't really have an idea for how that yeah, works. It's, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's something known about it. I don't, I don't know. I, as I said, it, it's one of those studies that left more and no more questions than, <laughs> than there were answers. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing that's happening. Uh, maybe we could just ask what, if there's something, one thing in sort of your career that stands out to you is maybe an adventure you were on or a place that you visited that was the most interesting or kind of, that, that's probably a really hard question, but maybe if there's something uh, hey. that, that kind of stands out. Uh, I don't know, Meg, <laughs> What's, what was interesting to you? I would say, honestly, getting to be your student and working with you, I mean, the field experience were amazing. I got to be around all sorts of different researchers, and it really opened up a whole new world for me. So I thank you for that. And it's the adventure I wanted. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess my adventure was having Meg as a student. No. <laughs> no. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. There's, uh, I, I do remember one adventure. I, I wrote about it once, but uh, with uh, on when I was on a, I was in um, uh, what do they call it these days? Middle school, junior high school, middle school age. In a boat, and um, um, and the um, person in the front of the boat. We're at night out on a big southern river i don't even remember i think it might have been the black warrior river in alabama um out in the lake in the river catching turtles at night because you caught them on brush piles and we catch you know 20 30 50 a night um and the person in the front of the boat jumped went over the boat to get a turtle out of a brush pile and screamed and turned around and a, a great big um uh it was a big i think it's a big a big map turtle yeah it was a big map turtle big female map turtle had him by the throat Ooh. <laughs> and he was screaming with and you know and uh it didn't let go and there were two of us one i was just a kid and the, i was kind of the helper um and uh, so we got a pair of pliers and a screwdriver Ooh. And we're finally able to get it off. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't on his windpipe. It's just right, kind of yeah, hurt. Yeah. And um, uh, that that was kind of memorable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and it taught me not to grab a turtle that way. <laughs> but what what species would if you or what do you think that would have been like? A, uh, maybe polka or. No, I wasn't pulchral because we were in Alabama. It could have been a nigranota. Okay, so it's one yeah. of the sawbacks. Yeah, yeah. It gets, you, gets yeah. you on the skin. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that must have sucked. <laughs> I took a pretty nasty bite from terrapin a couple yeah. weeks ago. You did. Yes. You're gonna show it to us? Oh yeah. my God! Meg wants to see. <laughs> I've been I've had over. It was, it was pretty chin, bad. Yeah. It got infected and everything. I mean, wow. Yeah. It's a big old female, big head from all the periwinkles. Oh my God. I think the funniest one that we were all there for this, it was kind of Jack and Wild. Oh, yeah. We were in, in Florida, like 
a little, well, a little less than two years ago. Oh, we were know. going through these canals with this guy, uh, really relaxed guy, just very little kind of really mellow. It was fun to go and look for turtles with him. And I was sitting there trying to get a photo of a slider he had pulled out. It was a hybrid slider, kind of interesting pattern. And he was taking a picture of it. And all of a sudden it shot its head out and bit right on his nipple. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't have it was on there. Yeah. It was like, like, it was, a, it was like stretching. Sliders yeah. are, 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 are I've the worst horrible. turtle bites I've taken are from right sliders. Like, yeah. Facts. They it, it's, it's bad. It, it's a, they are deceptively powerful in their bite and their aggression. When they when they get you, I I, I once had a, a female get me. I was just digging yeah, around I was in, in this there. tank I to get. I was digging around to pull her out of some tub or something, and she uh, latched onto right where your knuckle is, kind of like just that bit of skin. She just managed to catch it in those front two cusps and pierced it with the lower mandible. And was just had stuck right through it, and eventually I just had. After a couple of minutes, she just would not let go. I just ripped it off and then ripped it <laughs> the skin. It was that was a nasty. Yeah, it was bite. bad. But yeah, it took Kevin a few minutes. <laughs> She's like trying to dip it underwater and all. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll start to kind of wrap up, and then right. we can open it up for. We filled the auditorium, so uh, we can wrap. We can do some questions, uh, but I guess maybe we can. Uh, just, you wrote a paper recently that was, I think the title was where, or, where turtle ecology has been and where it's going. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of the, the summary of that and, and what uh, future generations of those interested in, in pursuing questions in turtle biology. Oh my gosh, I wish I'd looked at the paper. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the statute of limitations is all out. Um, the well, I think the whole point that was done with Jeff Lovich, one of um, um, contemporary with Meg as a student, um, but uh, and Jeff is a, is a premier turtle biologist. Um, but we what we did is reviewed some of the some of the studies. Well, we re reviewed some what started turtle ecology. Uh, and who were the classics like Archie Carr uh, and Fred Cagle, the two, two famous turtle biologists that really set things off. And, um, and then we, we looked at some of the, um, the questions that maybe need to be answered these days. Like there's still lots of questions about sex determination in turtles. How many people have taken these turtles that, uh, you know, a temperature sex determination where there are more females here and more males if it's cooler. And then there's some when it doesn't quite fit right, they say, well, when there's um, that in between, there's, in other words, it's, they're not very precise to me, uh, determinations of, of how sex determination really works. And of course, it doesn't work for soft shells, for instance. Um, what so uh, it, it, that's an area I think needs needs more um, more more focus, more. Um, and how many people? I, I would one of the questions we ask: How many times have people taken those hatchlings that are supposed to be all females or all males because that's the temperature they were raised at? And, and raised them up to adulthood to determine 
are they really all females and all males as they're supposed to be? That, those are kind of one of the kind of issues that um, another issue we ask about is um, there's the, the vocalization of in turtles, river turtles in, um, has been proposed. Um, if that's really true, then needs, I think, uh, needs to be documented in, in, uh, in, in, uh, maybe with some of the current auditory technology that's available. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm throwing these things out, and I realize some people may not be familiar with these particular topics, but uh, I think you are. But uh, um, and um, and then of course the the real thing is um, conservation. I think uh, we've got to do something, and I think things are doing. I mean, like Clint with the, talking about the Turtle Survival Alliance, they're doing. Clint, Clint Doak and um, Chris Hagen uh, doing a great job with that kind of thing. But we need, they need support and they need, we need other groups. And there are, I guess, groups all over the world that they're working with to do that. But it's, it's a ongoing effort that, um, and that, and that's, that's where, where's turtle ecology going? That's, it's going to go, um, it, it, it's it, it needs to be supported by um, other than just sea turtles. Sea turtles get a lot of support, but a lot of the freshwater and terrestrial turtles need a lot of research support to find out if and that that all folds back into conservation. You got it can't do conservation without knowing the ecology of the animals you're working with. So. Um, um, I, that, that was that was some of the issues we talked about in the in that paper you mentioned. Do you remember anything else? <laughs> I actually couldn't access it because it was private, but uh, it's like it, it was blocked. So I was kind of curious. <laughs> what really? Yeah, yeah. But uh, why is it blocked? Well, I'll give you a copy. Uh, yeah, I'd be fine with that. But uh, thank yeah. you. But, I think we should just emphasize that people don't realize how endangered turtles are. You know, people, when they think of endangered animals, think of fish or birds or Bears. amphibians. But in fact, turtles generally, as a group, they could be considered more endangered than all of those groups, mm -hmm. fish and even amphibians. That is a really good point. And there are not that many of them. There are a lot, yeah. you know, I mean, you got a little over in 350 or around tons of turtles and half of them are going to, Become this is amazing. They've been here 200 million years, mm. and half of them could go extinct if we don't do something within the, 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 the well, some of them are extinct in the wild. They're sort of, um, and um, if, if, unfortunately, there are groups, groups that are keeping them around that they can be replaced, but you can't replace them to the wild until the wild is fixed, yeah. right? Yep. yep. And I think what really ties in with that, it goes back to the basic ecology of, of turtles in general is it's been their biggest, what's really allowed them to survive is their resistance to change, which in a lot of 
which can be good to an extent until they reach a change that is affecting them like extremely negatively to the point where they can't and they don't respond quickly to change yeah. from their generations are extremely long so short-term changes in their environments won't affect them that bad while other species may be wiped out by those or may be negatively affected uh and they've built they've been honed by evolution for hundreds of millions of years that almost all of the what nature can throw at them they have some way of avoiding it but when a problem that they can't avoid is thrown at them, they're especially vulnerable to it because they cannot change quick enough to really escape it. That's that's pretty much what they're facing with all the anthropogenic threats there. Yeah. Rapid habitat change within months, days, or years, like way quicker than they have any chance to, to deal with. And uh, like even just collection for the like collection for food and the pet, <laughs> obviously they they can't deal with that. It's, it's unsustainable for them. Like other species may be able to reproduce faster and uh, reproduce faster to make up for those lost individuals. But each individual turtle that like mature adult in any population is a massive contributor for that species, for the ecosystem that it's in and ties back the whole seed dispersal and everything. Like each individual is like disproportionately uh, important for its species survival compared to animals that aren't turtles that are reproducing right. faster. And it's more of a generational scale rather than individuals themselves and the hatchlings have an extremely high mortality rate and once they surpass that they reach that point yeah well and i think turtles have a sort of a compensatory response to natural predation over time they they persist predation on and juveniles and the minimal predation on adults but they they don't have a they don't have a chance with poaching and road mortality on it, which is on adults so often that, uh, and they haven't evolved to, for adults to take that kind of impact mm -hmm. that, that uh, and as you say, they take a long time, delayed sexual maturity and, um, and generally low, low hatchling survivorship. But uh, so, yeah. We've created conditions they, they've not evolved to deal with. Right. We're like the perfect uh, turtle killing predators, essentially. Like very few other animals have ever figured out how to do it efficiently and effectively like we can. Like tortoises have become, I know it's kind of a morbid way to put it, but uh, the abilities we have with our intelligence and everything, we can bypass all of their physical I guess you could say defenses that That's right. that protect them from virtually any other predators in the planet. Mm -hmm. For even, most turtles, even those that are predated upon by like like for sea turtles, for example, like tiger sharks or something, are a big predator for a lot of them. But it's not really to the point where they can't handle it. Right, and that's to the as a, that's as extreme as it really gets for most turtles. And uh, and you only have a couple cases where they they mature quickly to replace. Uh, individuals that are lost only in a certain smaller species but for the most part it's so heavily dependent on each individual surviving there's so much investment from that like from the species standpoint in each individual that uh they have to be they have to survive like it's dependent on that while a lot of smaller species that are reproducing faster or well non-turtle animals like snakes or lizards uh it's so basic but that saved that has kind of saved them from the problems that turtles are facing now. It's not that turtles as a whole are more desired in the pet trade or anything. And 
some places they might be, but they're affected so much worse by it as a whole than most other groups of reptiles because of their basic ecology and their evolutionary history. Yeah. Yeah. I think like hitting home on why they're important to people too helps with kind of conveying why this is sort of necessary to understand at the same rate too, it's tough to get a baseline to understand how turtles are doing to begin with. And then that, that's a source of sort of contention amongst people that think, well, may, this is just a waste of time. I think we've laid out a lot of the reasons why people should care, even if you're not a herpetologist or interested in colonians. Uh, but I think the other aspect is long lifespans makes pretty much every aspect of a life table or sort of an analysis of different survival probabilities at different ages and such. It makes that very hard to get all of the data necessary to construct something that shows how populations will respond to influence, to, to impacts and such. And that makes a lot of things very challenging to predict because of how sort of long-term it is for turtles to get to sexual activity yeah, right. how long they live. I think that uh, unless anyone has sort of final thoughts, we can wrap up the discussion here. Uh, and then bring in some questions if we have any. But uh, I guess just to finish us off, thank you for coming on and, yeah, and yeah. having thank this discussion. With and us thank here. Meg too, for yes. sure. Yeah, thank you for the comments. I think, uh, I think Scott put it pretty brilliantly in an ep- one of our previous episodes. He's, he said that the turtles have been here for almost a quarter of a billion years. That's not millions, like billion. That's a, an insanely long time. And mammals as mammals as a whole have only been here for a fraction of that time. And our species, like it's like not even a, a like blink in the eye when it comes to how long turtles have been here. So that's another thing, even from a moral point of view, just to take into consideration how long these animals have been here and uh, how uh, per how well adapted they are to the to the planet and how integral they are to the ecosystems here, just because of that and how deeply they have, they have connected themselves to every aspect of where they of their environments they impact us as humans probably more than we think yeah. so and we impact them more than we think yeah. as ken pointed out yeah yeah all right well i think that that's we can yeah. open up for more than questions. most people think anyway yeah, got any questions <laughs> I, this is a general herpetology conference so that typically means what like two percent Interesting. Yeah, like two. Yeah, right. Goodness. But uh, if we have no questions, I think we're good to go to the restroom. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Gibbons, and Meg for joining us tonight for this discussion. And uh, this has been the first live installment of the Colonia Cast. So you can find us at theturtleroom.org slash Colonia Cast. And Thanks for joining us. Yes. Thanks. Wow. Thanks so much. Enjoy it. All right. You can get a little cursor. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Before you do anything, I'll let you handle it. Yeah. I'm the bad tracker. Michael's the expert.